So going into this, um, I didn't necessarily have a great center. I was very insecure. I had less than a month savings in the bank, so I was I had a lot of pressure. I was really suffering, and I wasn't managing well. Welcome to the Resilient Faith at Work podcast, where you will find and apply God's wisdom to your work. I'm Ken Kennard, and our team at Voca Center aims to inspire, challenge, and equip you to follow Jesus in the vocational dimension of your life. As we get started, I want to thank our generous listeners who have become donors and make this work possible. We're so grateful for your support. Voca funders sign up to change lives by changing work. And if you like this content and want to partner with us to reach more workers, invest in Voca. You can do that by going to vocacenter.org slash give and join us today. This episode is the first of a three-part conversation about resilient leadership with David Ridley, the founding CEO of Invesco Real Estate. For several years, David has worked with us on the framework we use for helping businesses and organizations thrive in the midst of constant change, competition, and disruption. So if you lead a team and you want it to win, despite the challenges, this series is for you. Okay, let's listen in. Well, David, it's good to see you. Good to see you, Chip. And for those of you joining us, David is the founding CEO of Invesco Real Estate. And uh, he started that decades ago. It was a while ago. And went on an amazing run. Started with zero employees and zero assets under management. Ended with north of 400 employees all over the world and uh, over 70 billion in assets under management. It was a 33-year ride, I believe. It's an amazing experience. And so in this episode and in two following episodes, we're going to unpack kind of the leadership model that was really at the core of Invesco's culture and their approach to business. But before we do that, David, I have a really important question for you. Yes. Why do you make fun of me for using little words? <laughs> I, I know all and it's con- constant. It's all- like every time we talk, which is fairly regularly, you're you're harassing me about the little words. I have learned and, and all just, con- just for our okay, listeners' okay. sake. You know, I'm only five foot four, so <laughs> I have issues with the word little. Like, oh boy, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm not more, I'm not much taller, but uh, I have found that most really smart consultants love those little words, which is really slang for big words that none of us normal people really ever understand. That's why you guys can charge so much and sound so smart. So. Hmm. Sounds yeah. like I need to raise my rates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, it's great to be together again. It's great to be together in person. And um, as we, uh, as you think back on, to, on the IRE or Invesco real estate run, like just at a really high level, um, before we get into the, the pieces, what, what are some of the reflections? It's been seven, seven, eight years, I guess, since you officially retired and you're still talking to people about the principles you used you're still coaching and consulting even where you're doing some projects together and it's which has been great so just like what's what are some of the takeaway reflections for you at a big picture level well it was a miracle that any of this ever happened mm-hmm. um, I was young and naive when I started it at 29 uh, I'd heard a senior executive at the firm I was with speak to the potential and the size 
of the Pension Fund Endowment Foundation Sovereign Wealth Fund markets, and that the future would be managing those monies. Hmm. So I kind of grew a vision. Um, I was very active in real estate in Dallas and in a, at a large life company making investments. And some of the brokers and other clients we had got to know me, and eventually I got invited over to start just that type of business and became a wholly owned subsidiary of this firm, and they asked me to come over, gave me a cubicle. It was on an unfinished office floor. I'll never forget that. And I hired a secretary, and they said, good luck. And that's how it all started. Hmm. Now, looking back, you know, that was 1983. Looking back over it all, it's been quite a miracle. Um, learned a ton, mostly through failure. Uh, I was, uh, I think, really quite naive to ever even try it. Uh, went through a lot of failure, but then finally started putting the building blocks together that maybe we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah, it's really good. How long do you think it was from age 29, starting this business, to the point where you kind of had, even if you hadn't written them down at the time, we call them the three pillars now, but like how long was it between when it officially started and when you kind of had the, the cultural model fairly cooked? I would say between 10 and 15 years that long. Uh, we had one client, one client only, we were fortunate to have for 10 years. So they'd get a cold, we'd get pneumonia. And it was a tough client, so we learned a lot about survival during those periods of time. We sold ourselves to Invesco due to a bankruptcy issue in the holding company we are part of. And that's when the learning really started, and I'd say two to three, four years past that time maybe, started really putting the pieces together, okay? And that, that's kind of when the pillars started. And then I didn't write about the pillars until around retirement when mm. they asked me to because we'd had a great deal of success in the institutional space, and they asked me if I'd please sit down and write it. So I took a stab at it, and my other five partners came in and edited it, make sure it was – I didn't use those big words, Chip. I just had little words. Edit. That's a, no. <laughs> so they came in and fixed it you know, in places, so we all agreed with the story and – and that's how how it happened and how we came to these principles we now affectionately call our three pillars. Let's just take a step back because you've used some technical terms I think some of our listeners may not be totally familiar with in terms of like what what exactly was your, what was the space you were in? Um, you talked about institutional clients, pension funds. What were you selling, so to speak? Um, and I, I mean, how did you make money? Like how did the, how did the business model work? Okay. Market so, and business model. I guess you'd call our space the real estate funds management space, okay? These large, large pools of money that exist, trillions and trillions of dollars, <clears throat> live in either pension funds, endowments, foundations, I mentioned sovereign wealth funds. Okay, those funds have to be invested. For many years, they were invested primarily in stocks and bonds, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, there, there came a time when the prudent man principle came into play, and I can't remember what year that was, but they decided they needed to start investing in other things as well, meaning like oil, uh, venture capital, private equity, real estate was like one the of those alternatives. Things. They're, the they're whole called, alternatives, all called category. alternatives. Yeah, yeah, and real estate is part of that alternative group. It's usually between five and twenty percent mm -hmm. of a large institution's portfolio. Now, by institutions, I mean those pension fund kind of clients. The retail side would be 
getting mutual fund individuals to invest in real estate, which right. is a, a growing thing today. So these people, these folks, these clients are working for institutions. They have, they have to invest a certain percentage in alternatives and, and just in about every, like apparently the prudent, every prudent person's portfolio, they're going to have some real estate. And so you, your team was trying to tap into that, that market and that yes. stream. Yes. And how did you make money? Like what was your, was it a fee assets under management fee? Was there, were there other things that how you charge, how did you, how did you charge your clients? how did that work? Okay. So there's different ways based on the kind of client you have, but generally speaking, you can have an upfront, we call it an acquisition fee. That's a pursuit cost that we have because you can't buy bricks and mortar real estate off a screen. So you have a large staff that spends a lot of time sourcing these income producing property opportunities. Sometimes you have that fee. Sometimes you don't. Then once you buy the property on their behalf, you end up having an asset management fee of Mm. some kind. That could be smaller or bigger depending on if there is an acquisition fee. Then usually at the end of the day, if you exceed certain benchmarks that you set up for them in the strategic planning process, you could even get an incentive fee based on how the property performs, meaning you get a small percentage of the profits. Interesting. That's all essentially right. how it works. So it's all about it was all about finding and winning the trust of these clients, and then there's a fee structure. Yes, and you're compared against an index, just mm-hmm. like stocks and bonds. There's a large real estate index, and depending on how you do, you get to keep your job or you don't. Mm-hmm. I think the longest contract we ever had was 90 days. So you basically are counting on your performance. Wow, all the time. Yeah. So that's the that's the space you wanted to get into. It's a uh, it's an institutional space. You're going against big players. And this model came about uh, over the years. It kind of evolved. and um, But you know, really became the DNA of how you led and how you ran uh, the, the company. Can you give us just like a high level, like what is, just give us the, the three pillars. We're going to talk more about pillar one on this, this episode, but say a little bit about uh, what they are. And, uh, and then we'll get into pillar one. To digress just a little bit, this space started evolving in the late 60s, and in the 70s it really took took off, and then it was the early 80s when I stumbled into it one way or the other. Uh, basically speaking, the three things, uh, having sat down towards the end of my career, I realized it was, it was the ability to be centered, to have some kind of solid center you could operate from, because business is tough, hmm. and it's very competitive. And especially when you're called to travel all over the world and you're dealing with not only personnel issues and all the things you normally have in a business, but we have lots of large clients that are governed by a staff, but effectively more so by their board. And a lot of these are public funds, so they're very political. Hmm. So without a solid center, um, that can change you, okay? But the most thing, the worst thing you can do is cause you not to be able to build a great team. And for us to win, we didn't have Warren Buffett in our corner, okay? So we had average people, you know, bright but average people. So I had to be able to engage in great building great teams, okay? Extreme team engagement is what we call that. And if I could do that well and really get people to buy into that, and there's a lot to that, then you could then go out and solve problems. The biggest problem of which we had was how do you land clients 
Hmm. When when the state of Iowa comes up and they want to you know allocate ten percent of their portfolio to real estate, there are hundreds of people who want that money. Right. So how do you compete for that? So basically, it's an elite client engagement, is what I call it, or experience we had to learn to provide. So there's three pillars. The first is being a centered leader yourself, having a secure center, because it starts with you as a leader. And then the second pillar has to do with your team, and it's creating a culture that uh, engenders this extreme team engagement. And then you use all that, the centered leader, the extreme team, extremely engaged team, to go out there and compete for business and win it. That's right. We get smarter that way. Mm-hmm. And you have a special term for getting smarter together. We call it IQ compounding. I have no idea where that came from because none of us had very high IQs. But we did come up with the IQ compounding. I don't think that's true, by the way. <laughs> that's my story. I think, that, I think that's your story. <laughs> that was true I, for me. I, I can guarantee you that. Well, I'm not going to comment on that. Um, say a little bit more about IQ compounding. IQ compounding was something we came up with. I, I honestly cannot tell you. All I knew is that we had to get smarter. We had to learn to compete. So we developed something we'll get into more later called a war room environment where we could get in there and we had rules for the room. And I don't, Chip, I don't know if you want me to get into those yet. But the point is we went in there and we had the ability to, to constructively argue about how we're going to solve this problem right in front of us. And to do that in a way where you left the room as friends. To get the best ideas on the table and you still like each other when you're done. Or at least least within a few hours after you're done. Yes. And learn to say, I'm sorry if you went too far. There we go. Good. All right. Well, let's talk about pillar one. Um, You said it's it's having a secure center. What more would you say like to define it? Well... We all labor under some kind of insecurity, and the people who tend to seem the most secure and maybe are the hardest on other people are actually the least secure. Hmm. So, you know, I know that going in. Uh, I've always had a pretty high EQ, and I've seen that, and I actually worked for a guy like that once, so I knew that. So going into this, um, I didn't necessarily have a great center. I was very insecure. I had less than a month savings in the bank, so I, was, I had a lot of pressure. And again, we were lucky to stumble into one client. And so uh, I was really suffering, and I wasn't managing well uh, people. Didn't know really who to look for to hire. Um, most everybody I hired to begin with in the first five years or so, most of those folks ended up leaving and were replaced as I started to learn by people that I needed, you know, going forward. And that was a lot of, I'll say, luck or divine providence, depending hmm. on how you want to look at it. Interesting. How did that lack of a center leak out, do you think? Um, you could see it in my stress, hmm. my tiredness, my reactions to employees, um, my, and mostly a lot at home. Hmm. You know, my wife could see it. Uh, I'd be exhausted, and I wasn't having it. Uh, a quality time, you know, at home with my kids. Hmm. So I didn't, I didn't really have the center of my life that was intact. That was over all things. I was living in silos. Hmm. So my personal silo was okay most of the time, but my business silo could be in disarray, and that would affect my personal silo. Then the family would, you know, 
when when you're not good at work, man or woman, your family's not good. Yeah, it's it gonna, spills it's over. It's going to come home. That's right. right. Yeah. yeah, it's really hard to insulate people close to you from that. That's yeah. really true. Well, that's where you were, but things changed. Tell us that story. Okay. Um, I was into this. That was 83. It started. It was around 1985 uh, when I had my change event. Um, you know, I was doing everything. A chief cook and bottle washer. We had three or four employees, uh, maybe five by that time. And I had flown to Houston to look at some industrial properties with a one of the leading brokers in the Houston market. Spent all day looking at industrial properties, thought we'd had a pretty good bonding experience, um, saw some promising things. And that night went to dinner and we're sitting around this table and it was this person uh, who's the broker and he had four or five of his employees with him. And after the dinner and before dessert, uh, he stood up and he wrung his glass with his spoon like he's gonna make a toast or yeah, something. like he's gonna toast me and 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 I thought oh well he's gonna talk about how much they appreciated me coming down from Dallas to Houston and etc cetera, etc cetera. so I basically was ready to you know take that take those accolades so in the meantime uh, I'm watching this and he looks me in the eye and he says hey Dave let me ask you a question and this is in front of everybody. This is everybody. The room was quiet. I don't guess anyone else knew what he was going to say. Who knows? But he said, do you realize you have no chance to compete in this space you've entered? And I just sat there and, and I looked at him. I thought I was hearing wrong. But then I distinctly remember chills going down my spine and realizing this guy's attacking me. Hmm. And worst, worst of all, he's probably right. Okay. I was naive when I did this. I had no idea. I didn't look at the competitors that were out there that were strong institutional players like J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, and a lot of firms you don't know that have been doing it for 10, 15 years. So I realized he's probably right. I don't even remember dessert. Hmm. I don't know if I ate it or not. Um, All I know is I remember walking back to my little motel there near the Galleria area and walking into my room in closing the door and seeing this little wooden desk against the wall at the end of my bed. And I walked over and sat down, and I wanted to cry because I knew this guy was right. I looked at the phone. I thought about calling my old boss at that institution where I was, but I knew that wasn't going to happen. He'd replace me, and that was over. So for some reason, I took out a sheet of paper and started writing down all my challenges and all my weaknesses and I filled up the entire sheet. It was a letter-sized tablet paper. And I ripped it, uh, the first page off. I got on the floor, and I just prayed over that paper. And specifically, what I asked God to do was to take me out of this. I had screwed up. Help, help you me wanted an exit plan. I needed an exit. I didn't have any money. Uh, we couldn't last that long. I needed an exit. But I said, Lord, if you don't give me an exit, then you own this. You become CEO, chairman, founder. I'll be doorman. I don't care anymore. I literally don't care anymore. I just want out or this is yours. And that happened. And Mm -hmm. I'll never forget standing up. And it was like 200 pounds came off my shoulders. 
The next day, I flew back to Dallas. I was walking the halls of my office. A lot of big, influential businessmen in this company. In fact, the CEO was really close to Jimmy Carter back then. Lots of big names. And yeah, I wanted to succeed, but there was zero stress anymore. Hmm. It didn't matter if I did or not because I didn't own it anymore. I gave up ownership. And the really funny thing that happened was all of a sudden, over the next few months, I started meeting people that I hired that became my partners and those five partners I retired with. Hmm. So I started finding the right people. And I st- just to give you an example, the, f- the next person I, I hired, I paid much more than I was making, $25,000 more a year in salary. Then I found another guy, I doubled my salary when I was paying him. Because, again, I didn't own it anymore. This is about competing in the market that was out there. It wasn't. It wasn't about side. you competing with them, being the top dog, that kind of. It was, it was an ego shift. It was an ego shift. It was me saying, if I'm going to compete with these folks across this globe, especially uh, in New York and around the country, hmm. I had to have the top talent, the top thinkers that I could possibly attract. And that's what it was about from then on. That's really interesting. It reminds me a bit of Jim Collins and level five leaders that he talks about it in good to great, that they're humble and like doggedly focused on results. Uh, but the flashy stars type charismatic celebrity business leaders, um, actually don't have as, they don't actually have as, as enduring a performance record, let alone real relations, relational, side. So it sounds like you went through a similar shift. Yes, I was greatly humbled, but I I became humble. Hmm. Not that I was ever super braggadocious, but I definitely became humble. But I lost my fear of failure. And that's a huge shift. Okay, so these folks that I hired, we became part of such a tight-knit team. We could talk about anything. There was no fear no room in our in our company to be a star. Hmm. We all knew we were pretty good, you know, but we knew we were better together. And I can right. tell you for the future what that does is it makes succession planning effective where the star systems don't. They're in real trouble. Hmm. So you don't hear a lot about, so you called it centeredness, like the sense of center, security. Um, I mean, there's certainly things about out in the business press about mindfulness and confidence people talk about that stuff all the time but it I'm, I'm not sure i've seen a deep treatment of this idea that a leader has to be centered to be effective um it's not very common i don't think no i don't think it is it's not talked about a lot um i mean the truth is none of us want to work for an insecure leader no no, and there, there's this feeling you, ha- you have to be John Wayne. You know, they're looking for me to make the answers. Right. Well, we set the rules right up front. That's not fair because we all own a part of the success. And as I've told you many times, Chip, I'll walk into a room and most of the time think I have the answer. And nine times out of ten, I didn't. I had part of the answer. So we just found that no one was allowed to be John Wayne or to be the star. You know, we're after the best answer to compete with those folks over there who are really smart. Hmm. And we had to get smarter. So what are some of the advantages? That, there's Maybe there, some of them are probably personal. Some of them are business advantages that a securely centered leader has. Well, 
number one, it's not lonely. Hmm. You know, I could sit there and talk to my guys like they're, we never hung around on weekends. You know, we weren't buddies like that, but we were buddies at work and you spend most of your waking hours at work. So we became very close. We could talk about most anything. Uh, everybody knew if they started getting off the reservation in terms of their type A personality, which most of us were, they'd get pulled back to center, hmm. right? So we all knew there was an accepted behavior. We even wrote it down, not only in our purpose statements, but in we had 10 rules of the road. And it was all categorized and spelled out that we were going to be a great team, hmm. and that's what was going to drive us. But you couldn't have a great team if you didn't have individuals who were centered. That's right, for the most part, and yet nobody really is perfectly centered. Hmm. So we had to have, you know, there's a lot of, I'm broken. Uh, in fact, during quarterly meetings, I would many times ask everybody in the room, raise your hand if you're not broken. And no one could raise their hand. And we'd say, I'd say, let's forgive each other. Let's just get along at work because the competition, I'd point out the window. We're all broken. And that, that was the, that kind of intentional management has to take place to keep the egos because we're all in this kind of business. You have to be a bit type A and really driven with a fire in your stomach if you're going to be able to compete. Based on our research, the top challenge people are facing at work today is burnout. And ignoring the warning signs can lead to more serious health issues, decreased performance, and an overall decline in your quality of life. At Voca Center, we understand how burnout can mess with your well-being, productivity, and overall happiness. That's why we created the Burnout Recovery Program. Reignite your fire and embark on a journey to lasting well-being with our Burnout Recovery Program. To find out more and to get started, visit vocacenter.org slash burnout recovery. That's vocacenter.org slash burnout recovery. If you're overwhelmed or if you've already gotten to the burnout stage, you don't have to stay there. Reach out to our coaching team. We're here to help. But sounds like the pillar one piece is critical to even get the right people in the room because they're not going to be attracted to somebody with a shaky pillar one. It sounds like you also need it um, to get the best ideas on the table because if you have too much ego, you're either going to just tell everybody what to do or you're not going to say anything. You could you could be the reverse of that. Um, it sounds like pillar one also just connects to longevity. And if you don't have a secure pillar one, like you're not going to be able to, you said business, you know, business is hard, it's challenging, it's always changing. You're just, you're going to get consumed by it. And yeah, well, you see it a lot. We saw some of our colleagues at the bigger Invesco and different, you know, wholly owned subs as we were, we'd see a lot of divorce, alcoholism and other things that were going on. Uh, one of the pivotal moments in our life, business life was 1990, 91. We were just acquired, started in 83 became Invesco in 1990, there was a moment we sat around a table, a conference room table, and we all agreed that we were not going to end up like that. We almost got mad about it. I, I did. To think that I have to be that to win? Uh-uh. We're going to do it different. And if we can't win, so be it. Right. But we're going to put our families first, and we're going to be balanced the best that we can be, and we're going to compete hard. 
hmm. and uh, not sell ourselves out at home. And that was a big moment and kind of became that pillar one, I think, moment. Yeah. Even though we didn't write it down. Like a collective one. Yeah, it was collective. Now for you, the pillar one is deeply connected to your spiritual life. Yes. Say some, say some more about that. Well, uh, everything is tied in my, in my mind. And it, this happened when I was in high school, senior in high school. I finally realized that there's a God. And historically, I believed there was Jesus and there was a God and that I gave my life to him then. Hmm. So I can't live in silos. I can't say God's over there and I can I'm act this here. way at, yeah. you know, at, at the office because yeah. people know in, in the way I lead my life and sometimes even talk about it that I'm, I'm a faith-driven person. So that's who I am and people know it at work. But guess what? I also had to say I'm sorry a lot. My admin, when she retired, she said the best thing I like about David is he always said he was sorry. <laughs> I, everybody died laughing. Because I have a temper, you know, I have drive. So I worked really hard to uh, treat people with respect and equals to me. But at the same time, we're all human. We all make mistakes. So it's where do you go back to? You know, do you have a center to go back to? And in my hmm. case, it was my faith. Hmm. Yes, and were there spiritual or faith practices that helped you Yeah. come back to that center? Yeah, I'm, I'm terrible at remembering memorizing scripture so i keep a whole big catalog on verses and scripture by topics but we all know the number one scripture if you're a believer is to love the lord your god with all your heart mind and soul the second is like it love others as you would yourself okay well it's all about loving others and that's when you humble yourself and you in in uh, empower others and delegate and you do the things that creates a healthy environment in pillar two you're loving them Again, and you're not only loving them, you're, you're loving their family because they get, they take it home. That's right. It spills yeah. over. So Christmas parties, I'd always thank the families. Hmm. No one had ever heard of that before, but it's the families that made their spouses available. And hopefully they went home healthy most of the time. That's really good. Yeah. Do you think somebody can have a center without a faith? Yeah, I do. You know, there are people I know that are very successful, lots of successful people that have no faith. At least they don't say they do. At least an explicit faith in Jesus. Uh, or yeah, like yeah it's, not, it's not there at all. Um, it's driven by other things. And, you know, I can't really explain it any better than you can, Chip, because I've, that's not who I am. But I will say there's probably more successful non-Christians than there are successful Christians. <laughs> Because there's more of them, and there's a lot of very successful, very large uh, companies run by very successful people. So let's do like some quick, just quick, your quick read. So when somebody's starting out in their career, what are some of the greatest challenges or threats to their pillar one, do you think, when they're young and beginning their, their work life? That's a great question. Um, so much of it, for me anyway, and I've seen it before, is they work for someone who has no great Yeah, they work conscience. for a jerk. They There's work for a jerk. plenty of them out there. Okay, I worked for a jerk for a while. And they're there to push you down, and a lot of them get a lot of confidence and satisfaction in doing that. So what gets modeled to you as part of your first business experience is just sometimes brutal. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you learn a lot of bad habits, and you don't have a mentor. Hmm. 
In fact, I, I laugh about this. You've heard me say this before. I went up to an elder at my church and asked him if he would be my mentor, and he dies laughing and asked me, why would I ever do that? Hmm. And I just slaked off <laughs> and never, never asked for a mentor again. It wasn't in. Uh, you just kind of got who you got, it seemed, in those days. And there were Christians, uh, but no one was too demonstrative. And, uh, yeah, you had a lot of pretty tough leaders. But you also had companies like my second place I went to work, that large life insurance company where I went to start this business, left to start it. There's a lot of great people there that weren't Christians. In fact, I had the experience of leading my boss to Christ, which was a great benefit. But I'd already left the business when I came back and was yeah. able to do that. So, but, but great people. So I landed in a pod at that point where I had some real good fellowship and good people to be around. So that helped me a lot. So it sounds like when you're young, you're, you, it's going to be very, very hit or miss. I mean, which is probably true all along, but it's really hit or miss. You don't have any power and you're going to have to find support and mentors. And you may have to go on a bit of a fishing expedition to find support and mentoring based on your experience. Yeah. And, but you can find it. I think there's it, more today than there's ever been. It's Res- better today. Resources today, yes. Yeah, and I, th- I think the other thing that sometimes people don't realize is that even if you're in the same industry, different different businesses or organizations or shops in that industry have different cultures. And just because you're in a, a bad one uh, doesn't mean the next one is, uh, is going to be terrible. Right. Totally agree. I don't know. The house is being broken into as we speak. <laughs> I do have, I want to keep, let's a little... A couple more questions about that. So if you're in the middle of your career, uh, what do you think is the challenge for your pillar one? You know, again, I, I come from it from a faith-based perspective. I think we're each on our own path, okay? I've seen folks, friends of mine, who feel like their path that God has them on or they found is not as successful as they want to be. Yeah, they're not where they thought they'd be. So that not where they thought they'd be. And then they get into the comparison game, which is deadly. That You never win that one. Right. So they end up being kind of depressed and can be mean hmm. and can be poor leaders because of that. Right. And so um, a lot of folks don't find satisfaction or they feel underperformance in their careers kind of midway through but it's too late in their minds to make a change. So that's a tough one. That's a conundrum. How about at the end? Like, and that's something you had to deal with at some point. You know, you came to a point where you decided my, uh, my time here is up at IRE and I need to hand off the baton to somebody else. How does that transition hit the pillar one? Well, it's kind of starting over. Uh, I had pretty good coaching from a consultant on what to expect, and, and I also talked to other retirees and heard their stories. So, But even knowing what to expect, that I was going to go from being somebody, you know, globally, because we had a lot of folks around the globe along with clients. Yeah, somebody to fix your computer and print oh, stuff for you. That was one of the hardest things. Was just I know, somebody I've experienced to... <laughs> it first. I've watched this firsthand. <laughs> I, I mean, it's, it's tough. Um, so you're on your own, and you really are. All of a sudden, you realize nobody, in, in uh, at least in a business sense, you're with your family, and you think that's where you wanted to be, but then you realize even though you were coached not to worry about it, you're still feeling like, I'm nobody now, and there's someone else. So it's almost like you built a house you know, with your partners and your company, 
but now you walked out the front door and left the key behind wow. and you can't go back not in a corporate environment you know mm-hmm. that's called succession you can, yep. do it, you can do it in a cell phone business you can stick around and become something but not not there you've got to leave as ceo and it was a good three to five years and i'm still not 100 percent there there's still a little part of me that misses that hmm. but it gets to be less every year you know that's a, another whole lifetime ago now it seems after eight years which effectively really was kind of 10 now hmm. but you still have to come back and redress your pillar one and strengthen it and kind of almost reboot it for the new season right that's that's your real question yes reboot uh, it's made me get much more consistent with my times in the morning, uh, with my quiet times, much more uh, guarded against not wandering off. You know, the idle mind is the devil's workshop, and that's true. So not wandering off into things I shouldn't be doing. I've had to be much more diligent, have accountability, create some friends that I can be with in that way, and just really be intentional about how I'm leading my life now. You know, it's funny, though, me, like a lot of folks, we end up saying, how did I do all this stuff when I was working? Because there, there ends up, <laughs> the vacuum gets filled with other things. Oh, yeah. You yeah. Still- There's always a thousand voices begging for attention and time. And that's why Pillar One's so important, because we have to have this sense of who we are and what we're about. That is kind of our core, our anchor that guides us through our lives and our work. Yes. Well, David, thanks uh, for this conversation about the IRE journey and pillar one in particular, we're going to come back in a subsequent conversation and talk about pillar two. Uh, but before we do, I just want to encourage our listeners to think about their pillar one. How secure are you? What would the people around you at work say about, uh, your sense of confidence and humility? And if it's not what you need it to be, what are some steps you can take, uh, to, to speak to it, to address it, to improve? Cause it's, it's, people want to follow somebody who they can trust and who they can share their opinions with and if that pillar one isn't secure you're not going to be that leader that's very very well put Thank you.